the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Okay, Mark, don't forget the part about subscribers. Yes, so if, you are, uh, if you're listening to the podcast for the first time or if even if you're a frequent listener and haven't subscribed yet, we urge you to go on Apple or wherever you get this podcast and subscribe, rate us, and uh, tell your friends. Good. And now, what the hell is going on? <laughs> oh, what the hell is going on, Danny? You know, as I look out on the TV every day, I do wonder what the hell is going on because oh. it's like we are in the midst of the biggest social unrest since the 1960s. First, it was the looting and the fires and burning down buildings. And now we've got mobs going after statues, tearing down, you know, not just Confederate memorials, but they're, they, in San Francisco, they tore down George Washington and wrapped him in a burning American flag. They're going after Ulysses S. Grant. They're going after Teddy Roosevelt. Abolitionists I mean, Abolitionists. In uh, abolitionists in Boston. They're, they want to move the Emancipation Memorial in Washington that was paid for and erected by free slaves. de Blasio in New York. I don't need to tell you this is stupid because saying de Blasio... You just said de Blasio. Exactly. Neither we say uh, more. Wants to move Teddy Roosevelt. Who, by the way, is the president for those, because there seems to be a lot of historical ignorance going on, spreading around this day, a pandemic, you might even say, of historical ignorance. <laughs> uh, Teddy Roosevelt was the first president to invite in a black man to dine in the White House. There had been previously presidents who had invited black men to, meet, to meetings in offices, but he actually invited uh, Booker T. Washington to dine with his family, which was considered in the South to be a heresy. And he took heat for it for the rest of his life. And we're going to take down his statue because it depicts him. This is in the statue in front of the Natural History yeah, Museum, right. which was started with his trophies that he had collected in his hunting expeditions, including across the American plain with Native Americans and including in Africa with with African guides. Uh, and the statues depict a Native American and an African guide. And oh, my gosh, there's somebody in some sort of tribal outfit in the statue. And so therefore we have to take it down. OK, so let's let's divide this up, because I think you and I I think you and I both recognize that there actually is an intelligent argument here. And then there's the mob. Yes, it is really not unreasonable for us to have a national conversation about why it is that there are so many monuments to the Confederacy around the country, many of which were put up well after the end of the Civil War. That is a conversation I, I just speaking for myself, I feel very comfortable with, you know, if you are... I think we both agree that many of them should be taken down. Exactly. Not, not of course, by ropes and mobs, no, no, by, but by, by the city. By city, by by legislation, by vote of uh, people. I would be perfectly happy and even and thrilled if they would rename some of these uh, military bases. I would love to see Fort Bragg become Fort Bradley uh, for Omar Bradley and some of these great heroes, Medal of Honor winners. You can There's lots of people that are worthy of naming, uh, but the problem with that is is that you'd then be celebrating the greatness of America if you renamed them for those people. And uh, and the mob doesn't want to celebrate the greatness of America. Well, I mean, not everybody is a, you know, rampaging idiot. Um, although, you know, we've discovered there are many more than we realized. But, <laughs> but, you know, there's a good conversation to be had. So, again, you know, these Confederate statues represent something. And, you know, as, as we've both said, this has been a time when, first of all, we've had, we've had more than enough time to, to think on any number of challenging topics. And, you know, 
when I try to contextualize that within my own history, you know, I, I grew up here in part, but I didn't come from America. And if somebody told me that my father, who was born in Austria, that in Austria where Hitler was born, they wanted to put up a statue to Hitler, I'd say, you know, no, that's yeah. offensive. And so for those whose main, the highlight of their career was, in fact, a war to defend slavery, I can understand the perspective of people who find that offensive and points to them for giving us an opportunity to rethink this. The question before us, though, is that slippery slope question. Yes. Which Donald Trump raised uh, a some years, years ago. ago, a couple of years ago. Megan McArdle had a great column in The Washington Post about this. We'll link uh, that for you in the transcript. Absolutely. But Megan McArdle, had, my colleague at The Post, had a great column recently where she pointed out that Trump said this and that everyone, all the historians came out and said, that's ridiculous. Of course, we can make a distinction between Robert E. Lee and George Washington. Well, nope. <laughs> apparently we can't. Uh, and he's sort of been vindicated. Again, you know, I, I think he's wrong to defend the names of these military bases and to do it so vigorously was really off-putting to me. Uh, like, you know, we're never going to change the names of these bases where so many Americans went off to war and like that. I don't think most of those Americans give a we're inspired, inspired by, by the, the Confederacy. Confederacy. <laughs> no, they're, what they're fighting for were the ideals of the of the Union. Uh, and uh, that was forged by Washington and Jefferson and the idea that all men are created equal and we're going to go slay the people who want to enslave us and our friends. So I got no problem with changing those names. Uh, exactly. But I mean, the problem is where this argument is going, which is that, so again, you know, Agreeing about the Confederacy, but then just sort of putting a full stop after that and saying, taking the mores of today, taking the, the standards of today and applying them retroactively is insane. History is replete, overflowing with examples of great people from Albert Einstein to Nobel Prize-winning authors to, you know, uh, I could go on and on and on, not to speak of political leaders who were anti-Semites, said something anti-Black, were hostile to Native Americans, were hostile to some particular grouping or others. Once you start down that road, where do you stop? No, I mean, well, they, they want to tear them down, too. I mean, you just saw that they they want to tear down in London. Winston Churchill. In London, they want to tear down the, the statue of Churchill, the man who saved Great Britain. Britain would not exist without Winston Churchill. And they want to tick through his history and pick his most unfortunate beliefs that were held at the widely held at the time, and that if he were alive today, I'm sure would not hold. My other favorite on that in that particular bit of ridiculousness is the other person who whose uh, removal is being mooted. Mohandas K. Gandhi, mm. who was quite a racist. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, the Mahatma, he really actually contributed a lot <laughs> towards civil disobedience, well, towards the independence of India. Well, they're rejecting him in more ways than one. I mean, to talk about, you know, peaceful protest and nonviolence. That, we've, the, we've given up on that entirely. That's the absurdity of this. Because, again, you know, we're talking about statues, but why, why should we just talk about statues? You know, I'll give you a, an enormously mundane example. Agatha Christie, right? I used to love Agatha Christie when I was a kid. I read all of her books. Agatha Christie was, you know, a woman of her times. She was a casual anti-Semite, made derogatory comments about brown people and black people. Um, her books are to be found around public libraries the world over. 
why should her books be in public libraries? Shouldn't we start removing these books from public libraries? Well, go to the book burnings now. Well, but I mean, isn't that yeah, a logical right. extension of, of what I'm is. talking about? Absolutely. Well, I mean, this is where has this come from? So what they what these protesters are after? They're not after the Confederacy. They're not even after just America. They are against Western civilization. They want to tear down Western civilization. And so where did this all start, this psychology of going after Western civilization? In How the universities. Sense. Yeah. It was, the, it was where, you know, well, we're not going to study old, you know, old white men anymore. we got to throw out all these books because they're written by white men. You know, well, I'm sorry. This is the source of the Enlightenment. This is the source of all the ideas that have, yes, written by white men because white men were in power then, and but have their ideas have spread and led to the creation of a country that truly is built on an idea of the Enlightenment that everyone's created equal, and we're not fully there yet. But you know, there's there's an no, old. We're my, not. We, my, we can always we can always get better. But there's also a question here of perspective. You know, Americans increasingly we hear people very loudly talking about the d- disgusting origins of this nation. The New York Times has devoted its entire quote 1619 project toward tearing down the notion of what the Revolutionary War stood for, what the creation of the United States of America was about and turned it into something that is debasing, something that is that is a terrible tale. And the lack of perspective is simply staggering. Yes, there is racism in our country. Yes, there is bigotry in our country. Yes, we can always get better because that's what Americans do. But people, you have not gotten out enough if you think we are the worst in the world. There is racism in Africa. There is racism on the Indian South subcontinent. India is built on a caste system that it's is like apartheid. In, intrinsically racist. All of these countries, but throughout Europe as well, have problems with race. The big difference between us and them is we confront our problems and they don't. And we also have a we have a government that was built around a system to move to make progress away from the away from that and towards greater freedom and greater equality for everybody. And it's been on an inexorable path in that direction for over 200 years. You know, it was always slavery was always seen in the context of colonialism, right? You know, cause it was the fuel for colonialism, for expansion, exploitation of peoples all over the world. And, uh, you know, the British were involved in it, but so were the Belgians and so were the Germans and so were the French and others like that. You know, now we're going after the anti-colonialists. Now we're going after the founding fathers who inherited slavery as a vestige of British colonialism and created a country that basically on a principle that said slavery is unacceptable because all men are created equal. And it took us a long time to get to the point where we had to fight a civil war in order to in order to complete that process of including everybody and emancipating everybody. And we're still on a path towards greater equality and greater acceptance and stamping out racism. There's, my pastor has a, has a saying that he talks about when he talks about himself as a sinner, and I, and I like it because it really speaks to me. He says, I'm not who I want to be, but I'm not who I used to be. And I think as Americans, we're not yet who we want to be, but we're not who we used to be, and we're moving in the right direction. And the idea that the founding is something to be attacked 
to be attacked and to be erased, to be canceled. Yes. This is canceled. insanity. There you go. That's it. It's the cancel it, culture. Right. It's now the cancellation of history. So we have a, a perfect person because a lot of the conversations have centered around the Confederacy, which are the kind of much more legitimate conversations. They centered around a man named Robert E. Lee, who those of us who live in Virginia know extraordinarily well. And George Washington. And George Washington. And we are very lucky to have with us Jonathan Horn, who has written two books. The first, The Man Who Would Not Be Washington, is a biography of Robert E. Lee. And he has a new book, coincidentally and luckily for us, called Washington's End, which is uh, about the post-presidential life of George Washington that just came out. Uh, he was a White House speechwriter along with, with in, the, yep. in, the, in the Bush administration, was the uh, one of the president's favorite speechwriters, one of the most talented writers. Uh, and I knew as soon as we left, when you look at everybody who where they were, where they were going to go in life and who was going to be successful, he was clearly going to become a, a great writer and a great thinker, and he certainly has. Enjoy our conversation with Jonathan Horn. <laughs> Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, great. You are the author of two uh, terrific books, uh, including the uh, the Man Who Would Not Be Washington, a biography of Robert E. Lee, uh, which was your previous book. You've noted that uh, you know we've got this whole controversy over Confederate memorials. You you noted uh, that Robert E. Lee opposed Confederate memorials. Tell us about that. That's true. Robert E. Lee did oppose building Confederate memorials in the years after the Civil War. And the reason we know that is he was asked during these years about various different memorial projects. And he always said, now is not the right time. It might anger the victorious Federals or the South was too poor to build memorials. And as to when the right time might be, he seemed to hint that the answer was never. In fact, he went so far as to say that he wouldn't even preserve battlefields uh, where the Civil War was fought. And the reason was, is he believed that countries that hid reminders of sectional strife moved on quicker from actual sectional strife by putting up hiding signs of the war. And in fact, he in a sense believed that reminders of the war might bring back the passions that the country had experienced during the war. Boy, was that right. <laughs> if you take a look around uh, America today, that's certainly true. Right, exactly. And, but he also had another reason. You might say, well, why did he want to put aside that? And in a sense, he wanted to get things back to how they had been before the war as quickly as possible. And I think that has some contemporary value to us today as we discuss what to do. I think most people would agree we wouldn't be in favor of putting up a memorial to Robert E. Lee. But the question is, what do you do with a memorial that's already standing. And that's the question that's before us today, in some sense, in terms of why did Robert E. Lee want to hide reminders of the Civil War? Well, he really wanted to go back to the way things were before the war as much as possible. So, I mean, it's interesting. Your book about Lee is called The Man Who Would Not Be Washington. He really, he was offered the opportunity to be the commander of the uh, Union forces, wasn't he? So he was sort of had one foot in the Union camp before deciding to uh, join the, uh, the rebels. That's right. And so many people on both sides of the Civil War in Richmond and in Washington, D.C., saw Robert E. Lee as a symbolic connection to George Washington. Um, He was the son of George Washington's most famous eulogist, the man who had written the words first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. And Robert E. Lee had married the daughter of George Washington's adopted son. And on the eve of the Civil War, people saw tremendous value 
in these connections. And one of the appeals they made to Robert E. Lee when they asked him to take command of the Union Army was that the country looks to you as the representative of the Washington family. But of course, ultimately, Robert E. Lee turned down that command because he said he could not go to war with his native state. And he was told that he had made the greatest mistake of his life. And though he was a great general, perhaps one wonders whether he he ever looked back and judged whether he had made a mistake. Did he? He didn't really look back on it that way. In a sense, he convinced himself that there had been no other option in that moment. In fact, as he went forward, he actually altered his beliefs. In, In the years before the Civil War, he actually believed that secession was illegal. He thought that secession was essentially treason. But as the war progressed, he came to believe that secession was legal, and he believed that the actions of Virginia carried along its citizens, including him. Now, it's also true to note that some Virginians made other choices. Some Virginians stayed loyal to the Union, so other Virginians felt they did have a choice. But as for Lee himself, he felt that he never did have a choice. You know, we have all of these Confederate statues and these, these monuments to various elements of the Confederacy. We do, in fact, all over Virginia, where Mark and I both live, have you know, Confederate battlefields that are national parks that the taxpayer administers. We have military bases that are, are named after Confederates. It's a little bit weird, actually, because I think Robert E. Lee's admonition is the one that most warring parties take, which is, A, you know, one side won and one side lost, and B, you tend not to celebrate the loser. It's, it's a little bit funny. What's the provenance of all of this? Well, most of these memorials went up in the years after the war, and many of them started in around 1890 and continued in the years after that um, into 1920, into that time period, if you date most of the memorials. And it was a period in which people really were, in a sense, romanticizing and glorifying the cause of the South. And it's a period, of course, that we also date the term lost cause to. Um, And that really was, of course, making the war less about slavery and more about glorifying the people who fought it. And I guess I think an important point as we think about these memorials is they say more about the people who put them up than they do about the people they show. They, They show that well after the Civil War, Americans continued to glorify the Confederacy and to romanticize the Confederacy. Now, of course, that is its own form of history. It says something about the mindset of this country. So in some sense, when we say these statues don't really represent history or they do represent history, well, they do represent a history. It's just not necessarily the history that you might think it is when you first look at the statue. You talk about two things, and I have two separate questions for you. One is the lost cause, or for you know aficionados of, of Gone with the Wind, the cause, you know, which didn't just glorify the question of the Confederacy, but also romanticized slavery and romanticized this notion of you know that that some slaves, perhaps not all, but some slaves, you know, led these cushy lives when in fact you know slavery in and of itself is kind of definitional. That coincided with the period of Jim Crow, you know, in American history. Should that be troubling to us? Well, I, I think when you look at the statues, I, I think in some cases, I mean, in many cases, these statues, of course, are offensive to us today. I don't think I know anybody who would favor putting up a memorial to the Confederacy today or a memorial to Robert E. Lee. So in that sense, it is troubling to us. But the question is, what do you do 
with a memorial that's already up, that's been standing for more than a century? Um, and that's, of course, a more complicated question because, as I said, it's not that you're going to lose Robert E. Lee from the history books, but what you do lose, and what I think is sort of ironic, is you lose something that actually many of the protesters say they want to emphasize, which is that our country continued to romanticize and glorify the Confederacy years after the Civil War took place. Well, let, let me play devil's advocate with you because, you know, you, Danny, and I are foreign policy people. And so we've we've very often celebrated the toppling of statues. You know, we saw the toppling of the statue of Saddam Hussein after the Iraq, after Iraq was liberated. After the uh, Cold War and the Soviet Union collapsed, they pulled down the Berlin Wall and they also pulled down the statues of, of Lenin and Marx and Stalin. Is... And we you know, felt this, really good about that. And we felt really good about that. I mean, is this sort of an overdue equivalent of that? Well, first of all, I would argue that currently, we're, I mean, until three weeks ago, we were not living under the equivalent of Saddam Hussein, <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> and not living under the equivalent of Stalin. You know, we, we have processes by which if we want to take down these statues, they can be taken down by local governments. And I don't think anyone denies the right of local communities to make these decisions for themselves. That's where the decisions should be made. But the decisions can't be made in this country by mobs, because unlike Iraq, we were not living under a brutal dictator. We have institutions, we have systems, we have mechanisms that we can use to make these decisions in thoughtful ways. And I really do believe that good people can disagree on what to do with these memorials. As for myself, as I said, I would like to put them in context. I would like to tell the stories of why the memorials were put up. I think that actually serves the purpose of, of helping to explain where we are at this moment in history. But I can also see people making the opposite argument. But we can't make any argument or have any thoughtful discussion as long as mobs are just tearing down the memorials at their own whim. You're not going to find any disagreement from me and Mark. And that, that goes to the most you know, objectionable uh, of these statues. You know, again, it's a very, very fraught issue, though. You know, you've written about history and, of course, you know, the prism through which history is viewed changes increasingly quickly. And that, at the end of the day, is part of the challenge that we face. You know, sometimes when when I'm in Europe, in Italy, you can still find some very small towns where there's a a statue of Mussolini in the center. And I got to say, even though Mussolini was less terrible than Hitler, yeah, my feeling is it probably shouldn't be there. And as you say, I wouldn't go and tear it down myself or enlist my children to do it. But these things do represent a, a particular perspective. I think the real challenge is where where you stop. So so okay, you know Robert E. Lee. We can all agree. What about George Washington? Didn't he own slaves? What do you think? Well, and of course George Washington did own slaves, as did many of our founding fathers. And of course, um, a few years ago when we were having this discussion. Donald Trump made the argument that if you started with Robert E. Lee, you would end up with George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, and everybody in the country had a good laugh at our president for and wrote op-eds explaining the obvious differences between Robert E. Lee and George Washington. And can you draw a distinction between Robert E. Lee and George Washington? Of course you can draw a distinction, and we should draw a distinction. Robert E. Lee made a decision to go to war against the union that George Washington had forged. Now, will we draw that distinction? I'm not so sure. And I guess here are three reasons why I'm not so sure. The first reason is that there's been an increasing push by certain historians and the New York Times especially to push a narrative that our founding fathers 
fought the American Revolution for the cause of slavery. Um, and I don't agree with that interpretation at all, and it certainly is not true for George Washington, but it is a growing movement. Yeah, this yeah is the, the whole, New York Times. The 1619 Project, and you know, the reporter who led that, if you go to her Twitter page, because she's been she's been cheering on the iconoclasts, but uh, it's, uh, it has July 4th, 1776 crossed out and 1619 reimposed over it as the true founding of America. Correct. And so that, that's the push to say that people like George Washington fought the revolution for the cause of slavery. Now, that sounds familiar. That is the, what the Confederacy was fighting for. They were fighting to set up a republic dedicated to the cause of securing human bondage. Uh, that is not what our founding fathers were fighting for. George Washington believed and hoped for an eventual end to slavery, and he actually favored legislative emancipation. He didn't know how to get there, but he supported it. But there's also another reason why I'm skeptical that we can draw very good distinctions. And the second reason is because we are at a point where we are increasingly judging figures from the past according to our present value systems. And that is just a very dangerous way to look at the past. I mean, of course, we ourselves won't necessarily be looked upon favorably 60 years from now. Um, it's just a very difficult, impossible standard for any historical figure to meet. And, th- and the third reason why I'm skeptical about lines being drawn is right now we have, as we, as we previously discussed, we have mobs making this, these decisions for us. It's not really a climate when thoughtful conversation can flourish. No, you're absolutely right. And and Washington and Jefferson were the ones who created an op, the first government in history built not on race, not on blood and soil, but on an idea, which is that all men are created equal. We didn't. It, it was a long evolution to get there to the point where we we largely live that today. But that was without them, there would be no government anywhere around the world that that lives up to those principles. But what's interesting to me is how quickly the mob has gone from attacking the Confederacy to attacking the Union, <laughs> because, you know, they just tore down a statue of Ulysses S. Grant, the man who who defeated the Confederacy. T- talk to us about Grant a little bit and, and his role in, in ending slavery. Right. And this is just really bizarre. I mean, especially in the current climate where Grant really has been enjoying a uh, revival. There have been many acclaimed biographies written of Grant in recent years. His reputation has flourished. His presidency, which had been previously looked upon uh, somewhat negatively, has been given a new look, and he's been given credit for having fought against the Ku Klux Klan while he was president. Using the insurrection act. statues were being torn down. (laughs) Right. So this, again, this just speaks to the fact that in the end, this is ultimately not really about historical distinctions. It's not really about anything besides destroying public property, um, because it's very difficult to come up with a rationale for tearing down Ulysses S. Grant. It's, it's basically impossible. Um, and, you know, we have other examples of this happening. We have, there was an, a statue of an abolitionist that was torn down. There are statues of Abraham Lincoln, which are being threatened. And, you know, in the case of Lincoln, it's that he didn't go far enough during his presidency. And, of course, it's another example that no one can live up to our standards from today. I mean, it's very difficult to understand these people unless you understand the times in which they lived. You say that it's not about anything but tearing things down. Is it? Is it possible that it is about something, which is that they're not against the Confederacy, they're against America? Uh, these are all symbols of America. Is this anti-Americanism uh, an anti-American mob? Well, you know, I, I think there's there's an argument to be made for that. It is tearing down our country. And, you know, I think there's also a great irony here. We were talking about the 1619 Project and what did our founding fathers fight the American Revolution for. Abraham Lincoln believed very strongly 
that the founding fathers really did believe in those words, all men are created equal. They just didn't know how to get there. They, they wanted to eventually work toward the eventual emancipation and the extinction of slavery, but they couldn't get there. But what the New York Times and other institutions have done is essentially ratified the John C. Calhoun theory of American history, which was that the founding fathers meant to protect slavery and wanted to spread slavery. And it's very strange to think in some sense that in, while we're having this discussion about Confederate statues, many of the people leading it are actually taking the same intellectual side as the people who were fighting for the South. But you underscore something that is the real common theme here, and that is ignorance. You know, I mean, I, I would I would love to believe that everybody who was pulling down statues was motivated by a fervor. I would even be happier if they were motivated, frankly, by some some knowledge about these individuals. But, you know, when they pulled down the statue of Ulysses S. Grant, it was in San Francisco, in Golden Gate Park. They also pulled down a statue of Francis Scott Key, who wrote the Star-Spangled Banner, and of, uh, of St. How do I pronounce his name? Junipero or Junipero? I'd say Junipero, but it probably was Junipero at the time. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know, but Sarah. you know who he is. And, and, you know, these are people who are, who are in no way associated. And, and as a Catholic... I know that he was canonized by Pope Francis on his trip to the United States in 2015 with Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi in attendance. Yeah, I mean, this, that's what I, let's just underscore, it, you know, mobs are by their very nature stupid. And, you know, I I frowned you, on a podcast. You can never see when someone frowns or, or laughs or, or kicks Mark, which happens too. But You can just assume she's frowning whenever I'm speaking. <laughs> True. But when Mark said, isn't it possible they're against America? I felt like I was in the middle of a Trump commercial. But the reality is, first of all, there's been a ton of flag burning, which is just yep. re- repugnant. But also, in reality, I think there is a sense that, that people are hostile to the very thing that America has intended to stand for, and that is the rule of law. You know, the reason we're able to do these things, the reason we're able to stomp from one park to another defacing statues is because this is a country of laws and you can't be arbitrarily thrown in prison. And people have taken advantage of that and wish to create spaces that are devoid of law, devoid of enforcement, you know, whether it's Chaz in, in Washington State. And that is a huge problem. It's not just that ignorance. It is that sense that, that our laws are, don't matter. I think that's completely right. And I, I think, you know, you, you hit it really strongly right there, which is it's about the rule of law and you can't really be having nuanced discussions. Um, you know, I think, you know, you, the three of us could have a very nuanced discussion about how to handle Confederate memorials. And, you know, we might be able to come up with some good ideas for how to either put them in context or to move them or what to do with them. But you can't have that discussion when the, just the basic premise of our country is under attack, which, as you said, is, in fact, the rule of law. No doubt. And and if we had that kind of a reasoned discussion, we might want to ask Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, so what do you think of the Robert C. Byrd rooms in the U.S. Capitol? Uh, I, I, I got to say, I, did you? was it you who brought that up? I saw someone bring that up. The only, when I worked there, when you worked there, the only sitting member of the Senate who had actually been a member of the Ku Klux Klan was the Democrats. Grand Cyclops of the Grand Cyclops was the Democratic majority leader in the Senate, Robert Byrd. And we still have all those rooms named for him. There's 50 statues to Robert Byrd around the country today. Why aren't they turning those down, Jonathan? 
you know, I, I, I'm at a total loss. What, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but, yeah, but, you know, it, it, it is interesting, and, you know, the, of course, one person who is um, c- coming under attack right now is, um, is Woodrow Wilson. And it, I'm okay it, with that. It, it <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, many of the... Um, down with the Treaty of Versailles! Take him down! Take him down! <laughs> but, but, of course, many of the army bases that we're talking about were actually named during his presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, Woodrow Wilson could remember as a young boy having seen Robert E. Lee as a very young boy, and he spoke very highly of Lee for the rest of his life. Um, and so, you know, it, it, American history is really complicated. Um, it just can't be, it can't be put into really simple sound bites, and these are complicated conversations, and they're not conversations that can be had as we keep going back to in a time when we're just indiscriminately tearing things down. But everybody's history is complicated. That's the reality. I mean, you know, the bottom line is every single country's history is is complex. It's not the kind of black and white cartoon book or TikTok video that I think is motivating a lot of people these days. That's right. And history is complex. And, and, you know, the decision to put up a monument itself is a form of history. And that is a complex thing to look back on and to figure out what went into the beginnings of the decision to put up a monument. When was the decision made? Who did it? Um, what, is the mo- what was the monument intended to say? It's difficult sometimes for us to figure that out from the space of 100 years or 80 years after these events happened. As a historian, let me ask you this. Is the problem that we now have a generation of young people that are not reading history and are getting their history from TikTok and their, and their knowledge from TikTok and from Instagram and from these uh, different uh, sources? Are we entering a, a historical period because people are because people just through the advance of technology and the I generation are not reading as much? Well, I think there, there's definitely a risk of that. And, of course, I would be, have every incentive to say, read more history. Um, <laughs> and read Jonathan's um, book, by all, by all means, absolutely. Um, but, of course, it's also, in a sense, I think we can be honest, some of this is also being taught in schools in terms of trying to, con- the argument that our founding fathers, you know, we learned that they held slaves, which is true, and it's a blemish on who they were, of course, but we don't learn about why, what they did to earn those monuments. We don't learn about the systems of government they put in place, about the revolution they waged, and and just how radical those words were, all men are created equal um, at their time. And so we don't get the full appreciation of the good they did, and we just learn about the bad. And that, of course, is part of this as well. So you've got a new book out called Washington's End, and it's fascinating because you, you know, Washington is probably the most written about president in history, and yet you found that nobody had ever written a history of his post-presidency. Tell, tell us a little bit about the book and why you wrote it. Right, and it's exactly that. Um, there have been so many books written about George Washington, but what happens when he left the presidency has essentially gone untold. And you may wonder, why is that? Well, it's because George Washington did so much earlier in his life, the French and Indian War, the American Revolution, two terms as president. And by the time biographers get through all that, they're out of space. Their editors are on the phone saying, where's the book? And the last years of his life always get squeezed out. But it turns out the last years of his life really were an unexpected chapter. Um, And it took a course he never imagined. Um, He thought he was going to leave the presidency, go back to Mount Vernon, and live out the rest of his days essentially as a farmer 
and in working on organizing his personal papers. Um, but history had very different plans. Just a little bit more than a year after George Washington left the presidency, he was called back to command the armies of the United States, given the title of commander-in-chief amid a war scare with France, and found himself in very serious feuds with his immediate successor and his future successors. In fact, basically surrendering power turned out to be far more difficult than George Washington ever imagined. What is the most interesting story you found about Washington's post-presidency? Well, one of the interesting stories, and there were so many interesting stories, was just how complex and how difficult his relationship with his successors were. Or he had a serious feud with John Adams about command of this army. And then by the time he died, he was no longer on speaking terms with Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe. That's your third, oh fourth, and fifth presidents of the United States. Uh, so when people tell you that, you know, our country is so bitterly divided today, <laughs> you look back to the 1790s, it was a pretty brutal period. We've got some presidents who aren't on speaking terms today as well. Oh, but that's a great story. <laughs> Everybody, really very much worth a read. Pick up Jonathan's new book and uh, and devote some of your time to actual history. Before you tear down his statue and wrap it in a burning American flag. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan, for being with us. This is fascinating. Thanks so much for having me. So, Danny, this is the problem with the left. They always go too far. So after the George Floyd killing, instead of saying reform the police, which is something that 90 percent of Americans support, they say defund the police, which is something a majority of Americans oppose. Now, instead of let's talk about Confederate memorials, which probably most Americans would support a recent conversation of this, they say, let's go after the union. You know, let's 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 attack the union. Let's do that. It's so self-destructive, but it's also unfortunately it's destructive of our country. It is destructive. Look, if, if you don't think America is a, is a great country, if you don't think that America is the land of the free and the home of the brave, if I may add that, then you are not going to think that America is a force for good in the world. And increasingly, you and I see that fight going on on, on national security, on foreign policy. Why should we be going to these countries and telling them how to be when we ourselves cannot put our own house in order? But I think the, the most important, one of the most important things that we, we talked about in this conversation is the rewriting of history. Mm-hmm. You know, I just let me step back and say, and say, you know, when I was managing our department, I noticed that almost everybody I hired had either been an English major or a history major in college. What were you? Uh, political science. Oh, well, so much for that. Explains a lot. <laughs> it, does. it does. I was a, I was a history major in college. And you, know, you, you learned what history was. And one thing you learned is that totalitarian regimes, bad regimes, rewrote history. They told you this didn't happen because of that. It happened because of this. You know, uh, the Soviets were, were masters of it. But frankly, the Nazis did it too. We are now engaged in efforts to rewrite what history was in this country in ways that are hugely detrimental to our future. What you're saying is they're totalitarian. In fact, they have a lot in common with all the people around the world that we think are, you know, evil. And I mean, like, you know, if you're looking to about tearing down statues as a model for tearing down statues, when I see these statues coming down, you know what I think of? I think of the Taliban tearing down the uh, Buddhas. Bamiyan Buddhas. Yeah. Uh, you know, it would just, it's just a hatred of modernity. 
It's a hatred of civilization. And, uh, you know, it's the same impulse. Uh, well, just they wrap it in, in, in radical Islamic ideology. These people wrap it in anarchist Marxist ideology. It's the same impulse. Well, I mean, look, we did talk about the fact that we celebrated when, when some statues were pulled down. You know, Saddam, Stalin, you know, believe me, I'd love to see somebody pull down the statues of Assad, father and son, in, in Syria. I, I think the issue here is that, first of all, the notion of reasoned and civil debate is, has gone by the wayside, you know, and people actually are making the argument that now is not the time for reasoned debate. Like, you know, there's no Anytime better somebody time. says now is not the time for reasoned debate, <laughs> uh, you can just cut them off. But but the other issue is is that that education. You know, we've talked about this in the past on the podcast. The the habit that that Stalin had. There was a wonderful book that was written about this, where if you fell out of favor. You know, you were suddenly you got erased from from the history books and from the from the newspapers mm-hmm. and pictures that once contained you just had a weird arm dangling over <laughs> something. The Chinese, the communist Chinese engaged in in the same practice. And cancel culture is that rather than looking back, examining, understanding our flaws and our mistakes, we are simply trying to erase people. And this is what you find in school history as well, is that certain progressive schools, including a bunch of private schools around Washington, don't even teach the history that people need to learn anymore. Instead, they teach these random sort of uh, bits of history that they've dragged out in order to affirm some view of society as they think it ought to be shaped. No, I agree with you. Well, I'll tell you, there's a controversy now because President Trump wants to have July 4th fireworks at Mount Rushmore for the first time in decades. They haven't had God. fireworks there in a long time. Trust Donald Trump it's, to have a dopey idea. Well, I, actually, I don't think... In, in, of course you don't think it's a dopey idea! Con- Danny, in the current context where people are tearing down memorials, I think the idea of doing a fireworks display at Mount Rushmore celebrating the people on that mountainside, and you know what? I say to Antifa and to the left... Bring your noose and try and take Mount Rushmore down, baby, because that's never coming down. (laughs) Well, all right. We'll fight. We'll live to fight that another day. I want to end this with a a quote that I put up on Twitter this morning because you and I got such a great laugh out of it. So we are not the only idiots around Um, in Germany. Mark is not the only idiot around. So this is just, uh, you know, in terms of who wants, to, who should be celebrated and who shouldn't be celebrated. So this is a quote from the, the Wall Street Journal editorial page today. It's an unsigned editorial. It goes, in Germany, a different monumental controversy culminated last weekend when a band of Stalinist Maoists erected a statue of Lenin in Gelsenkirchen. I don't know where that is. Believed to be the first monument to the revolutionary tyrant in the former West Germany. A cross-party alliance of local officials sued to block the statue, but lost because the Marxist-Leninist Party of Germany planned to place the statue on private property (laughs) owned by the party. And they say irony is dead. Well, Danny, you know, they're tearing down the monuments right now, but they haven't proposed yet what to replace them with. I, I think we might imagine. see some uh, some Lenin and Marx uh, statues uh, coming up in uh, downtown Washington. If as long go... as they're on private as... property, that's OK. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for being with us. Thanks for listening. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.